Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on Weather Geeks, it's all about the National Weather Service turning 150 years old. We'll take a look back at 2019 and who better to do this with than Dr. Louis Uccellini, the director of the National Weather Service and a friend of Weather Geeks. We'll recap the 2019 hurricane season, the forecast advancements we've made, and look ahead to the 2020 year for the National Weather Service and the forecasting community. Dr. Uccellini, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Marshall. Well, I, I think that um, many people that are uh, have been with Weather Geeks for a while, the TV show and the podcast, are quite familiar with Louie. I think it's between you and Craig Fugate for the most appearances on Weather Geeks, and so I, I think you have him edged out by a nod, so we always appreciate uh, you um, coming on. I uh, want to catch up with you and talk about many things. I don't want to just launch into the many topics. First of all, how have you been doing, and what, what have you been up to? What's keeping you up at night the last few few weeks? Well, I, I try not to uh, stay up at night, if I, if I can help it. Uh, no, it's actually, uh, we're working, um, our systems have been behaving, um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing the progress that we've uh, hoped for over the last uh, five, six years uh, in terms of uh, solidifying our infrastructure, and uh, we're seeing progress in, in uh, the areas such as the dissemination uh, uh, portfolio and the various systems that we're working with. Um, but, you know, we also realize that we still have work to do, but um, we're, we're seeing progress made. The, uh, the other aspect of, um, is that we're um, enhancing our um, central computing um, um, uh, systems and, um, you know, working towards um, our next generation system. So, you know, we're we're seeing progress there as well as as you know, uh, we can have the best science in the world if we don't have the computational power uh, to bring it uh, all home, so to speak. Uh, we won't make the progress that everybody wants to see. So we have that going on at the same time that we have our uh, model advancements uh, being lined up. So um, yeah, it's, we're we're pretty good shape, and of course. We've uh, had a great year in, um, in our forecasting uh, with respect to the hurricanes and looking forward to the big challenges with respect to winter. So uh, we haven't lost sight of, uh, you know, it all comes down to the forecasting and the provision of the uh, decision support services. And that seems to be going along as well. So. Let, let me let me stay right with you on the computational aspects and the modeling, because I know uh, this earlier this year, you rolled out the, the the GFS, sort of a new version, if you will. And you, as well as I do, know all about the whole European and GFS, uh, GFS the American and European, the Europeans better, they're better. Why aren't we better? You, you know all of that and deal with all of that. So give the Weather Geeks listeners an update on how the new GFS is doing, why, why you delayed a little bit in rolling it out. And then uh, from that, I want to transition to your thoughts on EPIC. Okay. So uh, with respect to the upgrade of the GFS, uh, we 
substituted in a new dynamic core, uh, so-called FE3, finite volume um, core. Um, we went through a very exhaustive evaluation process and, and chose that core uh, for uh, not only um, you know, from an accuracy perspective, but um, it, it, it has attributes uh, such as the uh, better conservation of the basic state um, f uh, factors. Um, and this is important because as you extend forecast out in time, you want a more conservative model. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and it's important that we have that, that you're conserving basic state parameters. So um, that's in. And we're seeing, um, you know, uh, it, it, we're seeing uh, good periods. Uh, we're just coming uh, into uh, the, the winter, and we usually do better in the winter, and we're certainly seeing that with uh, this core. Um, and uh, it provides a basis for the next set of upgrades that we're working towards, which is the uh, physics package, uh, uh, a new physics package. Um, and uh, we're um, also working in parallel with respect to the data assimilation. We certainly realize that um, the data assimilation and actually the data quality control, that whole front end um, needs to be revamped as well. And uh, we're working very hard on that through uh, our Joint Center for Satellite Data Assimilation. So there are a lot of, a lot of moving parts here, a lot of things happening in parallel um, with respect to the model development. And um, we feel like we're on a good path uh, with that and um, working with the larger community um, it, that got us to where we are and uh, certainly want to position ourselves to continue that uh, interaction as we move forward. Yeah, I want to kind of mention the data assimilation that you talk about, because I think a lot of people throw the European model and the American model around, but don't really understand sort of the nuances. One of the things, you know, I often see, and I'm sure you hear and see this too, Louis, I think some people have this notion that the European model is a Ferrari, if you will, and or, or a Corvette, and that the American model is some horse and buggy. I mean, I, I hear that kind of narrative. And one of the things I push back on is that, look, the American model and, GF, and the GFS and the European model, they're, they're both world-class models, and there are many times when the American model does better than the European model, and I, I think you agree with that as well. But there are some differences in the data assimilation and how the satellite data, which is a really important part of the component of what's going into both models, are treated. Can you talk a little bit more about the sort of slight differences in the data assimilation, or are, there, are they more similar now than I think? Uh, well, we're... The, the data assimilation, the front end of the model, is something that um, the European uh, modeling community, uh, UK Met and uh, the European Center, um, have systems that are, are more geared towards what we call the four-dimensional four variational analysis uh, basis. And um, what we have is, a, is an ensemble-driven uh, system that has a component uh, that that drives ourselves towards the fourth dimension, you know, the, the time dimension um, uh, on top of the three spatial dimensions. And uh, we have to, you know, we are doing evaluations of the system we have today uh, versus uh, being wholly in the four-dimensional variational um, uh, um, system. There are pros and cons to both. Um, uh, there are computing um, allocation aspects to that. Uh, the fact that we're on a six-hour cycle with our models that, you know, get our output out. You know, we upgrade our models um, um, four times a day. Uh, we provide that output on a, on a faster basis. You get 
for example, the, uh, the, mo- the model output, the GFS model output, a lot sooner than you get the, um, the model output from the European centers, for example. Uh, we, we have to take all of this into consideration as we move forward. But I think it's becoming clearer that we have to address the front end of the model. Um, and it's not just the model core, and it's not just the physics, and it's not just the front end. It's how they all come together. But we, we, we have to address the uh, front end of our model and to um, make sure that we're improving that even as we're improving the dynamic core and the physics. We are speaking with the director of the National Weather Service, uh, my colleague and friend, Dr. Louis Uccellini. Just a little background, a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, master's and bachelor's of science degree, all from the same place, uh, very similar to me in that regard. So he's a triple badger, as they say. Uh, He became the 16th director of the National Weather Service on February 10, 2013, served as AMS president in 2012-2013, and was the director of the National Center for Environmental Centers for Environmental prediction for 14 years, card-carrying scientists with over 70-plus peer-reviewed articles, uh, and is one of the, the top experts in the world on winter weather. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to pick his brain on that just from a geek-out perspective. Uh, as a scientist, we're just not going to talk sort of policy and administrative things today. Uh, I want to, and uh, Louis, I, a couple of months ago, I testified before the House Science Committee, and they were very interested in hearing more about EPIC. Um, we've had uh, Neil Jacobs on the podcast in the past. Can you give us an update of where we are on EPIC? Sure. Um, yeah, EPIC is this Environmental Prediction Innovation Center that um, uh, Neil Jacobs, who is the acting head of NOAA, has um, been promoting. And it's, it's a very important component of the, whole, of, uh, you know, of the whole process of reaching out uh, to the larger research community uh, certainly bringing more attention to that and bringing more resources uh, uh, to uh, that that critical link uh, to the uh, larger research community. And um, this and, and why this is important is that we have to do this in such a way that they can actually reach back into our modeling s- uh, systems, not only to do research, but also uh, if they find better ways of, um, of uh, actually simulating the processes that all come together in terms of a weather forecast, numerical weather prediction, we want to be able to bring those changes, bring those improvements into our modeling system faster. So, um, so it's a dual um, emphasis here: um, greater, uh, ac- you know, greater access to our modeling system um, from the larger community, and that includes the private sector folks as well. And um, you know provide that basis, provide that support for what they're doing with the modeling system, and also work, um, uh, you know, the engineering aspects of improving the models uh, and bringing that back faster uh, into our operational system. So this is a very important um, effort. Uh, The Weather Service and our research component of NOAA, uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric Research, component of NOAA working together. So is uh, NESDIS. Um, uh, we're all, um, you know, in, in on this and um, um, with the support of Congress um, that looks like is coming our way and the continued support of the administration, um, we hope to have this uh, moving forward um, by, the, by 2021. Uh, you know, we've had some tragic losses um, in, in our people that 
have been supporting this. Uh, William Lapenta, um, you know, uh, passed away in um, in late September. It was a really tragic loss, a uh, swimming accident, and in, in um, off the East Coast. Um, you know, Fujing Wang, uh, Wang um, at Penn State uh, had uh, uh, we lost him uh, quite suddenly. Um, and these were two giants in the field, and and and, and Bill was going to be, um, you know, leading this effort within within NOAA, and, and bringing it home. So uh, we're we're recovering from from that uh, slowly, but um, uh, we're determined to move forward. Have you heard? You can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free. Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Back on the Weather Geeks podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Louis Uccellini, who is NOAA's Assistant Administrator for Weather Services and the Director of the National Weather Service. And yeah, I want to echo something that you heard before the break. Uh, we lost two very key leading meteorologists and, and, and web well, weather modeling colleagues and Dr. Bill LaPenta, who is a colleague of mine during my days at NASA, and also Dr. Fuking Zhang at uh, Penn State, who actually sent me one of his graduate students who's now working with me at the University of Georgia as a PhD student, uh, Mr. Andrew Thomas. So yeah, th- I think those are personal friendship losses, but also huge sort of setbacks, as you noted, Louie, in this sort of effort. I want to actually get your thoughts on a recent paper by Fuking's group at Penn State. Uh, they, they published a paper showing that really about 10 to 14 days is the inherent limit on forecast uh, capability for the weather models. What were your thoughts and reactions to that paper? I mean, I think as meteorologists who understand things about uh, the limits of modeling and Lorenz's chaos theory, it wasn't necessarily a surprise, but any implications for you and your colleagues at the Weather Service? Yeah, so um, yeah, that's it's a very important research topic. And what are the limits of predictability? And we've had this week two uh, limit that we've all grown up with um, uh, from Ed Lorenz's work uh, back in the '60s. Um, there's there's evidence to suggest that if you just look at the atmosphere alone, that 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 limit. Is, is certainly something that um, you know, it hasn't changed. There's nothing that's changed since Lorenz's paper that um, uh, would suggest that we've made the breakthroughs, theoretical breakthroughs that would get us past that. But one of the things to keep in mind is that that was a sort of an unforced, uh, externally unforced system. In other words, there weren't the ocean boundary conditions which have slower modes and can influence uh, the uh, predictions all the, all the way, you know, certainly out into the climate domain, uh, as an example. Um, so, uh, and there are other aspects of the, you know, uh, working with the models uh, through an ensemble technique that might be able to extract uh, uh, more specific information out in the longer time frames. It may be, uh, maybe beyond week two, but, but that seems to be... Uh, a barrier to these initial value problems. 
So as we try, um, and we have uh, now implemented systems for weeks three and four, and of course we have seasonal, the subseasonal predictions, we deal more in a probabilistic mode uh, with respect to the predictions. And we're working with the models, and this is part of the model upgrades that we're working towards in the future here, to have these approaches from an Earth science, uh, uh, Earth system science approach where we're running the oceans and the atmospheres at the same time. We run the cryosphere. We, we have the land, uh, hydro, um, you know, the uh, hydro sciences built in, not only from the sake of predicting within those domains, but that the interactions, the boundary conditions imposed on the atmosphere actually uh, allows us to move that bar further to the right with respect to predictability. And once we get into the probabilistic aspects, uh, we're seeing skill um, in our, for our skill increases in our forecast of temperature in the subseason of the seasonal, but we still have this conundrum with precipitation. So, so all of this is out there. It's out there from a theoretical point of view, but it's also out there from a modeling perspective, and it poses the challenges to all of us as we attempt to move this forward. With that segue, I want to now pivot to the looking back at the 2019 hurricane season, Louis. Uh, I thought that there were some real uh, successes and some real challenges alike in, in the forecast season. We had Hurricane Dorian, of course, which uh, sat over the Bahamas for a while and just wreaked havoc on that island. Our thoughts and prayers to those folks. And then we had an interesting little system called Imelda, uh, which to me was a compound system in that it uh, had tropical characteristics. And then there were some mid-latitude aspects as well that uh, created a flood flood nightmare in parts of Texas again, where we've seen that with Harvey. So what are your preliminary thoughts on the forecasting during the hurricane season and even the messaging? Well, the um, uh, first of all, you know, 2019 was the fourth consecutive above normal Atlantic hurricane season. And um, we had um, 18 named storms, six hurricanes, three major hurricanes. Um, what we also saw last year was we had four storms made uh, landfall, um, uh, creating havoc as they did, um, some more than others. But we had Barry earlier in the year, then Dorian, Imelda, and then Nestor. Uh, you've mentioned Dorian and Imelda, so maybe we'll focus on that. But Dorian especially uh, posed um, uh, forecast challenges. Uh, the, uh, it was really kind of interesting. We had the track forecast challenges right from the beginning and uh, whether it was going to hit Puerto Rico coming out of the Caribbean or go to the east and a lot of the models had it working more towards uh, Puerto Rico and it turned out to stay to the east uh, and allowed it to intensify even more as it made that predicted turn towards the Bahamas and then it sat over the Bahamas that that stall really wasn't predicted well that far in advance. Uh, we, we picked up on it before it actually got to the Bahamas, but uh, there were model challenges for all the models. And there was also a widespread uh, in the track forecast uh, from that point forward. Um, and one of the things that uh, we did was we uh, made the decision to launch extra radiosons um, in the um, over the continental U.S. and Canada, Canada joined us in this to capture the extratropical, the waves moving from west to east along the uh, U.S.-Canadian border. And it turns out that once we started launching those extra sons at 18Z and, and 060, so we had four-hour 
I mean, six-hour intervals be, uh, between a large segment of our soundings instead of the usual 12 hours, the track forecast uh, did improve quite significantly from that point forward. Um, so keep that in mind because that track forecast had a turning towards the north. And from a mess messaging po uh, point of view, two big things happened. One, Miami, they did not evacuate in Miami. They did not close the airport in Miami. Uh, this is an amazing uh, success story, um, you know, given the number of people that were kept in place um, with a Category 5 storm sitting over the Bahamas, but an increased confidence in the fact that that would track to the north as it did. So that is an amazing cost savings. And more importantly, it, it stopped the surge of people northward so that when we had to evacuate the coast in northern Florida, Georgia, and up towards the Carolinas, you didn't have this surge of traffic coming up out of the south. So, um, you know, I mean, the emergency management community uh, at every level was, um, you know, just, just um, really... Um, sort of a congratulatory celebration after, after the event uh, between how we were able to communicate uh, the uncertainty and then the certainty in the track forecast and how the decisions were made. And uh, a lot different than Hurricane Floyd in 1999 where everybody evacuated and just jammed up the roads and, and made for a nightmare. Even though we did predict a turn, nobody believed it. So we, we're, seeing, <laughs> we're, seeing, we're seeing, you know, advances in the prediction, but we're also seeing the advances that we'd hoped for uh, in terms of our relationship with those folks who are actually making those kind of decisions uh, that uh, involve public safety. So uh, I thought it was a big success all, all the way through. L Louis, can I, yeah, can I just echo this? Because I remember in tw Twitter saying, if you look at, Dorian and how relatively close it was to South Florida, a highly populated area, yet there was enough confidence to not evacuate that area because we had enough confidence in the skill of our models with the storm that I mean I, I went to school in Florida and I can't imagine maybe 20 or 30 years ago with a hurricane of that that intensity looming that close to the state of Florida that there wouldn't have been sort of uh, panic or perhaps even a sort of urgent evacuation so I thought that alone was a, a testament to the skill of the models yeah but it was I, I agree with you entirely but it was also uh, a testament to the trust that has built up uh, uh, between uh, the weather service um, uh, forecasters at the at the centers at the local offices and the emergency managers that have to make those tough decisions. There was a lot of back and forth and discussions that were going on that that led to that decision. Um, so uh, you know, we we through this weather ready nation initiative that we've been working on for the last five or six years, we've we've really fostered this partnership. With the uh, our um, with the emergency management community and other government officials that deal with public safety at the federal, state, and local and tribal nation levels, and that all came to bear, that all came to fruition for this case because we've established trust. They know we can't give them a perfect forecast, so they have to make a decision based on the uncertainties that are there. And they do the pros and cons in terms of either making that decision or making the other decision. They, they have to make that. And we were able to couch our information in a way that gave them the confidence to hold back, to hold back. And then once, you know, they normally would have started the process before the turn. 
but they, you know, we were able to keep them, you know, wait, 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 you know, and then it did start turning to the north as we said it would. And uh, they had that confidence in us to wait those extra um, cycles, the model cycles and, and forecast cycles, especially to make this happen. So remember, we access all the models and there was pretty wide divergence early on. So that's why they were going to, um, you know, uh, lean more towards evacuation until we saw this narrowing of the cone of uncertainty and, and the models all systematically started turning this thing to the north. And I think it was the inclusion of those radius on data that actually uh, made that you know, really brought a more consistency to all the forecasts, European, UK met, Canadian hours, they all became more consistent in the track that actually happened. So that's a hypothesis. Uh, I challenge the research community. The data is available. They can do the with and without, and we'll, we'll sort all this out. But it, it did, you know, it did, um, once that radius on data was brought to bear on um, it, it really uh, made a difference, in my opinion. Yeah, for the and for those weather geeks and the listeners that aren't familiar with the term radius sign, uh, what Dr. Uccellini is simply referring to are weather balloons that we send up to collect data with the instrument package attached to it, things like temperature and moisture, wind direction, speed. This information, uh, you know, really helps initialize the models. Uh, but oftentimes we're only getting them perhaps twice a day. But during situations like this, as you've heard, they were doing doing special observations. And so um, my hunch is very much along the lines of what what Dr. Riccellini is hypothesizing. Another element of that we saw with uh, particularly Imelda, for example, is something that we've seen with Florence and we've seen with Harvey, uh, the rain, the flooding. So, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been discussions about whether the Saffir-Simpson scale is the right way to warn her for hurricanes because it doesn't uh, capture the rain or flooding threat. Uh, what are... What are your thoughts as the director of the National Weather Service on how we message the full package of threats for hurricanes? Yeah, it's it's an excellent point. So, um, you know, the definition of a hurricane is based solely on wind, right? So that's where the Saffir-Simpson scale comes in. And we have to remind ourselves that that is a wind impact scale, right? Wind on, on structures. Um, this topic uh, with respect to the storm surge, which was the, actually the biggest killer in hurricanes came up during uh, the post-review uh, of Katrina. And uh, so there was a major effort with respect to the science of storm surge, the modeling for storm surge, how do you communicate the storm surge, the social science involved. All this was brought to bear. We now have operational, um, separate operational watch warnings for the surge itself. And what we're finding uh, with this uh, information is that uh, we've seen record low numbers in storm surge deaths in the last two or three years. Um, and you know this is built upon the storm surge inundation graphic that was introduced in 2016, and then the storm surge watch warnings in 2017. So we've brought a lot more awareness to this threat, and we think we're already seeing, um, uh, seeing the results of that. Um, quite dramatic, actually. So, um, so that's you know one aspect, and then there's the inland flooding uh, that's involved with the heavy rain. Um, Ed Rappaport's been you know writing papers on this uh, for the past 10, 15 years. We have much more collaborative effort within the Weather Service, and I think the community itself between 
the hurricane forecast and the rainfall and, and, and flood forecasting. And we're certainly focused on that as well. So we're messaging, you know, the hurricane winds, the storm surge itself um, with separate watch warnings. And we have the, um, uh, the separate, you know, quantitative precipitation forecast and flooding um, uh, uh, watches and warnings as well. So all this is being brought to bear and it's making a difference in terms of the readiness for these storms and the public awareness. So um, uh, we're, I believe we're moving forward on all three of those items. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia and speaking with the head of the National Weather Service, Dr. Louis Uccellini, and we're talking all kinds of topics. I want to shift discussion now to the National Weather Service. You direct one of what I feel is the most important agencies in the government system, um, essentially for about the cost of a cup of coffee per American citizen. Uh, your budget to me is one of the greatest values across the government, uh, given how important weather is to almost every aspect of our lives. Um, What is the status of the National Weather Service in terms of your budget, staffing, technology upgrades? Well, um, we're actually, um, you know, we feel like we're getting support um, from uh, the Hill. You know, we all live by the appropriation that um, and and the language that comes with it. And we're certainly... Um, have been uh, moving forward uh, with that. We have, I, I tell folks, we have bicameral and bipartisan support in what we do. And I think uh, a large part of that reason for the increasing support is that we have connected with the emergency management and public safety officials at all the levels of government, as was authorized in the 2017 Weather Act. And uh, we essentially are touching every county every day. I mean, we, we touch everybody's lives, uh, whether they get their weather information from an app, from private sector folks who we support through our, you know, our data and, and the information that we provide. And, um, uh, and it, I think it's paying so, off, um, you know, what the feedback. So, so you don't, I'm sorry, I, 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 I want to get that before I, I lost the thought. I apologize for interrupting, but I want to make sure I capture that thought. You don't see a threat then to the emerge, rapid emergence of the private sector in weather. No, uh, there's, the, the growing importance of the, um, of the information that we provide, whether it's observations, forecasts, warnings, uh, is you know, being factored into every facet of, 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 our, of our lives and livelihood, whether it's agriculture, energy, um, transportation, recreation. Um, it, it's, it's, it's important. Our focus is on the public safety. It's part of our mission, saving lives and property and enhancing the national economy. And we can do the first one, obviously, through our partnership with the public safety and emergency management community. Uh, But you have all these other um, applications which are growing. The way I put it, 
is that the pie is getting bigger for the entire enterprise. People are recognizing that this information is incredibly important for every aspect of what we do. Uh, the business community uh, needs this information to uh, just you know decide what they're going to do the following weekend from a retail point of view, as an example. So this tailoring of information to those kind of applications is something that the private sector has really grabbed and um, and and making work, and it's it just shows the amazing intrinsic value of everything we do. Whether like I said, whether it's the observations, the forecast warnings, the communication uh, to the American public through multiple means, so that they get they get the the data that they need uh, to make decisions in terms of public safety. So uh, I think it's working, and I know that the rest of the world wonders how the hell we do it, tell you the truth. <laughs> but the, the thing is, uh, we've embraced it. Uh, we, we uh, you know, the fair weather report that came out of the National Academy of Sciences in the early part of this century sort of set the, the ground rules and provided a, a platform for us to have discussions when there are con- uh, conflicts uh, at, at the American Meteorological Society, um, that commission on uh, weather, water, and climate. I, I just feel like uh, we're in a good spot, and uh, as an enterprise, we're moving forward um, in, in yeah. tremendous ways. I, I, I agree, and I, I appreciate your your leadership over the last several years now. You've been in, in the current position for quite a while, and I want to now talk a little bit about your legacy, if you will. I mean, you've mentioned the Weather Ready Nation and sort of transitioning to decision support and impact-based forecasting. So I, I think you have a legacy. So how I want to set up this question is I want to talk about the 150th anniversary of the National Weather Service, which is coming up in 2020. So give us your view as the director of the National Weather Service on what this anniversary means and then how it fits in with your legacy and what you're trying to do at the agency. Well, the um, the the 150th anniversary is obviously a big deal. Um, you, the, uh, you, you only have 150th anniversary once, and we wanted to make sure that people within our agency and and and, and the general public themselves un, um, see the rich history that we have. So we've had this uh, major campaign that we do over the over our social media outlets. You know, this hundred we started 150 days before February 9th, um, and and the idea is is every day we're putting out you know major you know some major aspects of our our history and things that we do. So looking back, uh, we found some interesting things uh, that you know could be relevant for today. So, for example, two of the individuals that were really um, you know responsible for setting up the first what we now know as the Weather Service, which was in the Signal Corps, the, the main individual was uh, Increase Lapham from Wisconsin, who uh, you know saw the possibility of putting out data that would help uh, keep ships uh, from sailing out on Lake Michigan, uh, which was a major route for commerce and, and, and people traveling, when there was a squall moving you know, from west to east and that kind of thing. So that's his relationship uh, with uh, Congressman Payne and Payne's relationship with President Grant through the Civil War helped create this, the first, uh, uh, what we now know as the Weather Service. This was in the Signal Corps. That was all done for the public good. At the same time, Cleveland Abbey 
uh, was being supported by the Cincinnati Chamber of Commerce, again, protecting the ships, but from a commerce point of view. And it was actually, we were actually able to unearth letters that showed that th there was a discussion about whether this should be done from a private perspective or uh, from the government from a public good perspective back in 1860s, not post-World War II, you know, not, you know, now. This, this is built into our, into our his, historical fibers. Um, and it turns out with this establishment, um, it, it, it did become a government function uh, for the public good, but there were already people saying, hey, we can use this information from a more commercial perspective. So I find that incredibly interesting. And the other, wow. thing, that, the other thing that we're finding is, is that there are major weather events that have had impact on on moving the agency forward, uh, the blizzards of 88, 1888 certainly had an impact. The Long Island Express in 19, um, in the 1938 um, led uh, eventually to the Reicheldorfer era, and that you know, radiosons introduced, radars, numerical models, satellites. So, you know, these types of events are really big for us currently. Were the severe weather outbreaks in 1974, which really helped get everybody's attention on needing to modernize with the Doppler radars as an example. And then in 2011, we had these big tornado outbreaks, which led us to the realization that you needed to connect with the decision makers in a more effective way, what we call the impact-based assistance support service. And, and that connection has to happen. You have to practice, 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 be ready for an event, and then move that forward so that because they're the ones that are out there saving lives. They're the ones that are out there evacuating communities. So we have to take our information, work with them, map to their key decision points, and that's how you save the lives and mitigate property loss and, and make sure a community is ready and responsive to these events and therefore more resilient. That's the change we're working on now. Yeah, I think that, and I think your your fingerprint and DNA, and when we look back in history on the National Weather Service, uh, perhaps in another 150 years or so, I think uh, Louis Uccellini's name will be prominently uh, mentioned in that regard for advancing us there. Before I let you get out of here, Louis, I mean, you talked about model upgrades and things that are going on with EPIC and GFS. What's coming down the pipe in terms of radar and satellite and other observational uh, capabilities for the Weather Service? So what's the next great upgrade to the radar and satellite system? Well, the radar systems were, were actually been solidifying uh, through our service life extension program because we've just gone into the dual pole, you know, getting that vertical component for, um, you know, the precipitation return so we can better understand the, the type of precip, the, 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 the rate of precipitation. So there's still a lot of work to do within the, the radars that we have, and we wanted to make sure that every component was upgraded so we'd get into the 2040 time frame uh, and would allow us to then, you know, test and assess anything new coming down the pike. And one thing that is coming down is, is what we call these phased array radars. It's coming out of the defense applications, but that gives a much, you know, theoretically, it gives us a much better view of these systems with a much faster return. So, you know, you don't have to do the, the, the scans and, and the like uh, and take that kind of time, you know, that three, four, five minutes. So uh, we're looking at that, but that's, there's still some work that needs to be done there. So with the Service Life Extension Program, we feel like we'll have a real solid observation system that'll uh, provide a bridge to the future. 
Uh, with satellites, it's the high spectral resolution. We used to launch satellites with uh, sounding channels, maybe you know in the teens or you know that kind of range. Uh, now we have uh, thousands of channels um, on the lower Earth orbiting satellites, and we we've been practicing with this data. Um, and now we have the operational uh, JPSS lower Earth orbiting satellite, and we have an advanced baseline imager on the GOES satellite which is, uh, I think, going to redefine mesoscale meteorology for us. With this new technology, we're seeing things like fires just beginning to develop so we can actually uh, work with other agencies and make sure the right people are alerted to these fires much sooner. We see much more detail on the severe weather outbreaks, the hurricanes, the the uh, flood-producing rains, the, the snowstorms. I mean, it's just an amazing array of, you know, you actually seeing the atmosphere operate as a fluid uh, with this advanced baselight imager, which to me has been remarkable uh, just to watch. And we can get it with the new technology to the fingertips of our forecasters much more efficiently and effectively. So, you know, I'm just seeing all kinds of uh, new things that we're going to be able to do with that. Uh, those are just two uh, examples. There are there are others with LIDAR and, and, and the like, but I don't think we'll have the time to get into that. But Yeah, we don't. We, we, we really do need to start wrapping it up, but there's so much more we could talk about, so that's why we need to have you back periodically. But I want to sort of give a shout-out to Dan Lindsay and Steve Goodman, who actually came to the University of Georgia a couple of weeks ago and shared about the amazing ABI, the Advanced Baseline Imager. And also, I want to give some love to the uh, geostationary lightning mapper as well, which I think is also providing some really cool... Yeah. Yeah, it's really giving some cool things as well. But before we let Louie get out of here, it is time for our Geek of the Week. Uh, the episode's Geek of the Week is Maria Lyons. Maria is a science teacher and loves just about anything science particularly weather and climate. She loves teaching and advocating about climate change. Her weather interests all started when she experienced the blizzard of 1978 in Boston. You can follow her on Twitter at Maria Lyons dot. If you are someone, if you or someone you know is deserving for being the Geek of the Week, please make sure you're following all of the Weather Geeks social media on Twitter and Facebook. And I think that was an appropriate Geek of the Week, uh, the Blizzard of 78, given that Dr. Louis Uccellini is the author of one of the seminal books on winter weather. Louis, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, thank you for having me again, Marshall. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. This has been Weather Geeks. We'll see you next time. 